from the book of Revelation, two passages, one in Revelation chapter 21, and one in Revelation 22. Revelation 21, verse 1, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and his death shall be, and said, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no lamp of light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. Father, we ask this evening that you would make your book live for us, for your word is not only true, but it is supernaturally empowered. And when your spirit comes and meets your word in the minds and hearts of your people, wonderful things happen. And so we pray that that would happen tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be um, asking yourself, what in the world this strange amalgamation of scriptures has to do with Christmas Eve. I mean, where are Mary and Joseph and the three wise men and the shepherds in all of this? And that is a wonderful story, and it's well worth retelling, but tonight I want to do something just a little bit different in the brief time that we have together. For our Advent series this year, the four weeks before Christmas, uh, we've used the celebration of Christ's first coming to think about Christ's second coming. Because you can't really understand the significance of his first coming until you grasp where Christ is taking things when he puts them in their final form that he prefers. 
And so I want to walk you briefly through the biggest of big pictures. I want to tell you tonight briefly the grandest of grand stories. And I want you to see where you might fit in if you submit to God and let him have his own way with you. Chapter one in our great story is paradise. God created not just a world, but an entire universe to place this world in. It's a place of stupendous beauty and magnificence and power. And he carefully fashioned the earth and he filled it with an amazing variety of plant and animal life. And then he carved out a special patch of this planet, which is itself a special planet, and he planted a garden there. And he put our first parents in that garden. It was literally paradise. The word paradise is a loan word from the Arabic that means garden. And God gave them a task. He said to them they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and they were sub to subdue it and to have dominion over it, starting with that little patch of garden. Now, some people today are concerned about language like subdue and take dominion, and they think that it's been used as a justification for harming the environment. But what God is after here is for our first parents and their offspring to take responsibility for the natural world and then to shape it in a way that promoted its own beauty and its own goodness and its own well-being. In other words, they were supposed to progressively, generation by generation, push the boundaries of the garden outward until the whole earth was garden. And at each stage, they would have had to understand new things. They would have had to understand what plants flourished best in a particular climate zone and what the animals needed for habitat and for food and to make sure that that was provided for them. Their descendants would have to create all of the branches of human learning in order to fulfill this task, they would have had to learn biology and botany and chemistry. Engineering and metallurgy would have been developed. The arts of various kinds, because everything was to be beautiful. Education, communication, government. This idea that God had placed these people here to begin shaping the world with his power in cooperation with him to produce something more beautiful than it already was, more complete than it already was, this is called by theologians the dominion mandate. Now in this world, as God created it, there was no death. In this world, as God created it, there was no sin. There was no evil. There was no suffering in this world. There was work to do, but the work was easy and meaningful and full of joy. In this world, there were no tears. In this world, nobody ever said the N-word. No one would have made anyone else feel small or contemptible. No one was selfish. No one was hungry. No one was unemployed and no one was a lazy mooch either. In this world, children would have been completely safe at all times, and women could walk anywhere after dark. In this world, there was no addiction. There were none of the soul wounds that are so often inflicted by others that give rise 
to addiction. There was no depression. There was no anxiety. There was no bipolar disorder. There was no cancer. There was no obesity. There was no heart disease. In this world, husbands and wives cherished each other and respected each other and delighted in serving each other. In this world, everyone you met would have been a friend and the doors would have had locks on them. In this world, God would have always been near. He would just drop by in the evenings in order to walk with you and chat with you and give you advice if you needed it. In this world, even the animal kingdom was at peace with itself. We're told early on in the book of Genesis that everything ate plants. Lions and lambs laid down next to each other at night to keep warm. Rattlesnakes didn't have poison fangs. And it would have been perfectly safe for the kids to keep a cobra or two as pets. This world was, quite literally, perfect in every way. Every part of this world promoted the flourishing of every other part of this world. And the linchpin of it all in God's plan, the ones responsible and empowered to oversee this perfect world under God, was us. We were vitally connected to God in a way that his power flowed through us to the rest of the created order. And we were to wield that power to accomplish the management and the direction and the flourishing of the whole creation. It was paradise. But chapter 2 comes along. Paradise was lost. We did not stay vitally connected to God for very long. Our first parents set in place a horrible chain of events which they doubted God's goodness and the goodness of his plans for them and turned away from him. And because they turned away from him, he turned away from them and he left them on their own with only their own tiny resources and energy and power and those were not sufficient. Their error and their rebellion effectively unplugged them from God's energy and power and brought death and disease and evil and disorder and pain and tears, not only to us, but also to every other creature. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the creation itself being subjected to what he calls futility and what he calls in another place the bondage of decay not because of anything wrong with the creation that the creation did, but because of, quote, him who subjected it, that is, Adam. And this rebellion did not make Adam happy, nor Eve. It made them instead miserable and tragic figures. C.S. Lewis has meditated on these things probably as well as any other modern I know of. Listen to what he says. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could, quote, be like gods. They could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God and apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, 
the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And that dominion mandate that God gave to us at the beginning didn't go away either. We still feel the pressure of it to this day in many ways. It's embedded deep within our nature, but that has morphed. And the created order became something to abuse and exploit and despoil in our relentless pursuit of self-sufficiency at every level of social organization. Other people became something to worry about rather than a source of great joy and fellowship. We try to dominate and compete with them and exploit them or else risk them doing the same to us. The family became a place which was regularly marked by pain and emotional and often even physical damage. Nation rises against nation and people rise against people. You know, it's fashionable, and it has been for about 100 years, to blame religion for lots of the wars, and that's just stupid. I'm sorry, but I can't even get all the people who go to church here to show up on the same day to help take care of this building in the name of religion. I certainly can't get them to rise up and kill their neighbors in the name of religion. But if I say to somebody, those people over there, that group, they look different, they talk different, they are different, they're organized and strong. They're a threat to us. They could very easily come over here and rape your wife and enslave your children and take your house and land away from you and then execute you. Well, then you're motivated. And religion has just happened to be a convenient marker of tribal identity in the past, a way of distinguishing us from them. Race plays the same function. But even if people are of the same race and religion, they still go to war with each other all the time. I mean, all you have to do is look at the history of pre-Reformation Europe, and you can see that everyone was Catholic and everyone was white, and they fought like cats and dogs. You see, people are anxious because they're afraid. They're afraid they aren't going to have enough. They're afraid they're not going to be safe. They're afraid they're not going to be able to flourish. And out of that anxiety arises all human conflict but people are afraid that they aren't going to be safe and have what they need precisely because they unplug themselves from God, who is the only source of sufficiency and protection and abundance and safety. So we had paradise, and then we had paradise lost. And now at last we get to the baby in the manger. Because he came to put God's good plan into effect so that paradise might be regained. He is, according to the scripture, the second Adam. He is fully human, so he can represent us, his people, to God. He is fully divine, so that he can represent God to us. And thus, he is the only true mediator between God and man. That's why you got to come to him to be saved. There's no place else to go. No one else is qualified for the job of mediating the conflict between you and God. We all were, in an important sense, in the words of the Bible, in Adam. And so what he did and the consequences he suffered for what he did were passed on to us. The Bible says in Psalm 58, from birth we go astray. Uh, 
We die because Adam brought sin and death into the world. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam, all die. You were born, and so was I, in Adam. You inherited sin and misery and eternal death just by being born. But you can be born again in Christ so that you receive all that Christ possesses and can pass down to you. You can inherit the life that is His. It's called eternal life. You can have that along with His ownership of all things. All things in heaven and on earth are Christ's. And they are His by right, and they are His because of His costly redemption. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, Paul says, if God didn't withhold Christ from us, why would he withhold anything else? No, he won't do that. He will not withhold from us anything. He will give us all things. Every year, for the last 25 or 30 years or so, my wife and I go back to her home in Iowa for our post-Christmas Christmas celebration, our family celebration, because when you're a pastor, you don't get to be gone on Christmas Eve. And it's always a long drive, uh, and we always drive, we never fly, but we don't mind. Uh, we've learned from living in South Dakota for a long time to, to use that time and to enjoy that time. Our kids travel well and always have, so do our dogs. Now, this is the farthest we've ever lived from Iowa. It's a 13 to 15 hour drive, depending on Chicago traffic and how many bathroom stops we have to make. But everyone, even the dogs, gets excited when we load up the car. And when my kids were little, my wife made up a little song. My, my mother-in-law goes by Mima, and she had the little song, we are going to Mima's house. And it got to the point where even the dogs knew the Mima's house song. And they start jumping up and down in the front yard, and we'd say, do you want to go? And they'd get all excited and start barking, because they want to go to Mima's house too. Everybody loves to go to Mima's house. Now, I notice here in Ohio that you have these nice rest stops. Uh, they're much nicer than what we had, say, in South Dakota. You can meet all your needs in the same place. You can fill up with gas. You can drain the puppy. You can go to the restroom yourself. You can get a meal. You can get some gum. You can get a nice cup of coffee. They're generally clean and safe and well-lit. They're nice. They're very nice. They're necessary for the journey, even. But they aren't the destination. Nobody's ever said to us, to my wife and I, can we just stay at the rest area for the rest of the week and not go to Mima's house? Nobody's ever said that. You know, Christianity is often presented to people strictly in terms of an offer of forgiveness of sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. And that's not untrue as far as it goes. But most Christians are never told what eternal life is and what it's for. And it's interesting, I discovered this as a hospice chaplain. You end up talking to a lot of people about what happens after they die and what they think is going to happen and what they think it's going to be like. And they're very confused. They're, I don't know. I saw on Tom and Jerry that Tom, you know, when he died, he sat on a cloud and played a harp and he had wings. Maybe that's what we're going to be doing. No, no, no. And so to focus 
solely on these aspects of Christian truth about forgiveness of sins and heaven when you die, to the exclusion of all others, is kind of like, theologically speaking, deciding to stay at the rest area rather than make use of its blessings and benefits and then to continue on the journey. So here's the big deal. Jesus Christ offers redemption from sin and heaven when you die because those things are a necessary and integral part of his larger plan for you. You can sort of sum up God's plan with two verses from these passages in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5, See, said the risen Jesus, I am making all things new. And in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5, but they, the servants of the Lamb, the people of God, shall reign forever and ever. If you are in Christ, what will you be doing in a billion years? Reigning. Reigning with him. What will you be reigning over? Well, you will be reigning over some slice of the creation that God has appointed you to be responsible for. But it will be a new creation. It won't be this old, broken down, polluted, messed up creation. It won't be like it is now where heaven and earth are divided. You'll be able to travel to the throne room of God in the same way now that you travel to Cleveland. It'll be just a different route is all. No, it will be a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, we had paradise. We had paradise lost. And when Jesus is done, we have paradise regained. There won't be any sin. There won't be any death. The old serpent Satan will be in the lake of fire along with all of his servants, both angelic and human. In this world, we're told there will be no more tears. No one will make anyone else feel small or contemptible. No one will be selfish. No one will be hungry. No one will be a lazy mooch. It will be safe at all times for everybody. No one will ever say the N-word or inflict wounds on the souls of others. There will be no addiction, no depression, no anxiety, no bipolar disorder, no cancer, no obesity, no heart disease. People will cherish each other and delight in serving each other. And everyone you meet will be a friend. And there won't be any locks on the doors. This world will be physical, just like this world is today. And you will live on it in a physical body, not the broken down mess you have now, but a resurrected body, like the body with which Jesus got out of the grave. In this world, God will always be near. And he will drop by in the evenings just to walk with you and chat with you and give you advice if you need it. In this world, the animal kingdom will be at peace with itself. Lions and lambs will lay down together, and rattlesnakes won't have any poison in their fangs. This world will be quite literally perfect in every way. You know, people sometimes talk about their dream job, or sometimes they talk about a feeling like they were put on earth to do something. And very often their 
frustrated because they can't have their dream job and they hate the one they have. Or there are aspects of the dream job that they don't like, but they put up with because there are other aspects that they do. Or they're paralyzed because they don't know what they want to do, and so they kind of wander through life aimlessly, trying one thing and then another, and they never settle on anything for the long haul. And in one way or another, all their dreams are just a little bit dented and maybe even squashed. But the God who knows you better than you know yourself has your dream job waiting for you as a pure gift of his love and goodness. Your character will be transformed so that you are capable of responsibly exercising great power, greater power than Adam had. And God will grant you great power and great wisdom and great creativity. Your job will never frustrate you. You will wake up in the morning with joyful anticipation of what you will accomplish that day while you labor side by side with friends who are friends of the deepest and the best sort, all under the authority and leadership of King Jesus. In other words, we shall be put in a new garden and given the authority and ability to fulfill the dominion mandate. And it won't get screwed up this time. It will just be good in every way. And you will be happy. I, I, I wonder what, what I'm going to be doing. You know, I'm not sure you're going to need preachers up there. Um, so I'll probably be out of a job. But you know, one thing I love to do, I love to cook. It, it makes me happy when I cook and I cook something for people and they go, oh, it's so good. Pastor, it's the best soup I ever ate. I love that. I sit at the kitchen table and chop vegetables on my day off and my wife goes, that's your happy place, isn't it? I said, yeah, that and a certain section of uh, Acreshire Field in Pittsburgh when I'm watching the Steelers play. Those are my happy places. And I say, maybe God will have me be a chef in the kitchen cooking the banquet of the great supper of the Lamb. Maybe not. Maybe he's got something else. But I'll be happy. And it'll last forever. You know, once again, I say C.S. Lewis has thought more about this than any other modern. And if you know the Narnia Chronicles at all, the last of the Narnia books, I think there's seven of them, the last one is called The Last Battle. And it's sort of Narnia's book of Revelation. And these children have been going back and forth between Earth and Narnia, and the whole history of Narnia through the whole seven books lasts about 80 years in Earth time, although it's thousands upon thousands of years in Narnia time. And they come to the end, and wonderful things happen. And then the children are talking to Aslan, and he says to them, they say to him, rather, we, look, we feel sad. And Aslan says, why are you sad? And they say, we're afraid you're going to send us home, back to earth like you've done so many times. And Aslan looks at them and says, there was a real railway accident. Your father and your mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. 
The dream has ended, and this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them down. And for us, this is the end of all of the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on and on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is what this babe in the manger won for us. And if you are in Christ, you will see it. You will enjoy it forever. And you will be so, so 